All right, everyone, quick intro here. This was an amazing conversation, and I want you to stay tuned for it. It was a conversation on uh, Tiger Safarov, who runs Zen Supplies. He was like, and every time I see him, it's just he's a he's he's an awesome resource. He's just so he's so good for the industry. And um, and he had this on his podcast, me and Dr. Scott Goldman, who uh, I believe is out of Arizona, who's at uh, Pedo Ortho. But he's it was a conversation about the good and the bad and the ugly about DSOs and exits. And Scott has had, I think, multiple exits. And so it was a great collaboration conversation. And it wasn't to uh, crush the DSO, right? I don't want to become known as the anti-DSO guy or group. Um, but on Bulletproof, we do talk about that a lot. So I wanted to repurpose this video, uh, repurpose this conversation, because Scott is, like I said, a wealth of knowledge. He's gone through the process. He can show kind of the, the innards of, of what happened, why one failed, why he decided to go through it again. Um, and I was actually asking questions and giving some of the context that I've had in the process. Because um, as you guys know, we went through that that long-winded podcast where the four of us went through and we broke down a term sheet kind of to show you where the aha things are and stuff like that. So Scott was in agreement on a lot of stuff and he brought up some new new areas of things. But um, it was a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. All right, everybody. This is a pleasure to get both of my favorites. Dr. Scott Goldman, my Google friends. I have so many stories about Scott. I can talk forever. Scott, if you ever run out of things on how to introduce yourself, I have a lot of stories from the t-shirts with holes and how you bought the first car, legit car. So we can talk about it for a long time. That's for later. And Peter, I really appreciate you jumping in. I mean, we've been friends um, for, I wouldn't say a long time, but for some reason you gave me time. And anytime I reach out, you answer, that blows my mind. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. So I really appreciate you guys jumping in. And the topic we want to discuss is how to help private practices continue staying private the the angle is not to say the dso's are bad i think the angles is to know what you're getting yourself into and i think that's the big part of what people don't talk about there's a lot of excitement there's some people that are saying you should sell the time is running out i don't think so i don't believe in that and i think peter doesn't believe in that either and we wanted to bring scott to talk about all the misconceptions and pros and cons when you look at the other side and scott maybe you can jump in and tell a little bit about your story and, and then we can go to Peter. Peter will tell the story and then we can start with questions. Sure. Real, real quick. I'm a pediatric dentist and I sold a group with 12 offices to uh, private equity in 2017. We doubled in size in two years and then uh, COVID hit a lot of good, a lot of bad. And I got out of that situation and moved to Phoenix told myself I was never going DSO private equity again. I was staying private, went private for a year and a half. And here I am back in the DSO world, uh, as of March or sorry, as of May this year. So it's been an interesting run. Um, a lot of happy to share pros and cons, um, and just what's out there and what to expect. And, uh, thanks for having me tiger. Yeah, and I hope you share some juicy stories of like, during sure. the board meeting, I was told this, and I told them to F off, 
and we could probably swear on this podcast if we have to. Okay, good. Peter. Yeah. So uh, yeah, appreciate you connecting us, bud. I'm happy to happy to be here. Um, so again, Peter Bolden. I am the co-host of the Bulletproof Dental Practice Pod, and I am currently running eight eight practices in Georgia. Um, so and doing you know a lot with the Bulletproof Mastermind and uh, the conferences and things like that. I have tiptoed around the private equity. I did not go as far as Scott did. Um, I've had some very tempting offers and considered it a couple of times and actually went through the diligence of it only to discover that, yeah, this is complete bullshit. Um, and it's going to be a big series of over-promising and under-deliver. Um, so Tiger, you remember, actually, I think you, you were one of the, the people who called me when I broke down that term sheet. Um, and I, my most recent favorite episode. Yeah. And, and I broke it down with, you know, a fair level of complexity and a fair level of, uh, it took a long time. Right. And we went through and broke it down and, and, um, Scott, if you haven't heard that, I'd love for you to go back. I'd love for you to, I'd love to send you that because you, as someone who's gone through it, you actually have a lot more chops than I do. Right. Meaning I've only gone as far as the diligence. You've actually had what sounds like two success. Well, you've had two exits. Um, it, it sounds like. And, um, so that's, that's my story, Tiger. I don't want to jump in. You're going to have to prevent me from trying to be the moderator just by nature, because I'm the moderator on mine. So you're going to have to, right. Right. Like, and we'll have like, dude, this is my podcast, not yours. <laughs> no, I think the topic is all of ours topic. We're helping the profession to choose for people to really understand that all of their choices and options. And I think the reason for us, we're so passionate about private practices is like for me as an immigrant. This is the ultimate dream. This is the American dream is to have your own business, have the freedom and have the wealth creation, right? So these two things are so fundamental and there's nothing else that comes even close than owning your own private practice. And so I feel like a lot of people are missing on that and they're jumping into the DSOs for the wrong reasons. And maybe Scott, maybe you can kick off like, what was your, like, why did you sell 12 offices? You guys are doing great. You and Louis, Louis, your orthodontic partner, you guys were killing it. And then why sell? Yeah. I mean, great question, right? Because it's a lot of money, Tiger. Hello. Ultimately, yeah, Peter nailed it. It's yeah. a lot of money. So we were doing well, 12 offices, um, probably about $32 million in revenue. So a lot of EBITDA, almost eight and a half. Jesus. Uh, so we're, we're living a great life. But what we had was a lot of headache, a lot of work. So the, you know, misconception or, or what you, you believe you're getting into is, oh, somebody can take on a lot of this risk, a lot of this work. When in reality, that's maybe not the case because um, everyone's systems have holes in them. And uh, you just, you, you give up a lot of control, obviously. So why did I sell? Money. Let's let's be real. A lot of money. And Thanks. for my family, still still the right move to this day. Um, but we'll get into pros, cons, and everything in between. But ultimately, money is what uh, drove that initial sale. Can you give an idea of the range? I don't want you to tell the exact amount, but is there any chance you can share the range so that we understand what a lot means? Because when you say a lot, like for me, 
again, I'm an immigrant. Five million is a lot of money. But hypothetically, like, asked it this way. Hey, like what kind of multiples were you looking at? Because he already gave you the EBITDA. So then you could tell him the multiple and then you could do your math and be like, that was his exit price. Yeah. So, you know, if you're getting between nine and 10 X, you can do the math on that. And, you know, it's yeah. a lot of, a lot of money. You're getting, getting close to a hundred million dollars. But what, what people don't understand a lot of people is that's not the money you actually get. Cash at close, right? That's right. That's what Peter was saying on that pod. That was so instrumental. So take us through it. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's public information now, right? So you get a valuation and then a certain amount is in cash and a certain amount can be in rollover equity. A certain amount can be in weird, weird shares that, you know, just have some Pref. interest rate right yeah. to them. And it's just ways that the DSOs or groups can can you know leverage their their cash better and in, in their debt wouldn't you uh, agree scott that i don't want to cut you off but like yeah a good portion i would love to hear the breakdown of like that since we already kind of know and and also would you agree that a pref is really just owner financing the uh, pref stock yeah i mean i i definitely agree with that okay Pref stock is totally owner financing because basically you're not getting your cash now and you're getting a six eight percent or what whatever they give you um, you're hundred percent spot on okay. as far as the money you get up front, you know, that can be anywhere from 50%, 51%, 60, 70, 80, It all depends on the group, but on average, you can expect, you know, maybe 50% cause they're going to give the rest in pref and the rest in rollover. So if your valuation's a hundred, you can get 50 great. But if your valuation's six, Okay, you may get three, you may get two and a half in cash. You need were to you understand the, the rest. Were you the platform of this PE group? We we were a platform. Yeah, we had a yeah. we had a big infrastructure. When you guys say platform, what does it mean? Practice number one: they're building everything. You as the flagship, you're big enough size. You've, you've reached a critical inflection point of size where you have enough. You're yeah, you're the biggest swinging whatever in the in the town. So you're like, all right, we can we can grow from here and. It's a, it's a very big start. Mm -hmm. The offer that mm -hmm. I broke down was the same thing. It was a platform. I'm by no means, our, our ecosystem is no means as big as Scott's EBITDA, but, um, but it's, it's the launch pad. I would say Scott, and I'd love for you to jump in. I think it's the launch pad for people who, for, for private equity. who's like, shit, we need to get into dentistry. We need to buy a platform because we don't have the dental acumen and we need distribution and earnings and EBITDA very quickly. Yeah. And I think more importantly, for these legit groups that are looking for a platform, they're looking for technology. So sure. they actually view dentistry as a technology company and mm -hmm. how can we scale? So I had a centralized services is just how my group was because we were in a relatively easy space, um, high volume, low touch. We were, we were a uh, decent amount of Medicaid and, and in pedo ortho, it's just a different model than say general. Um, that's where a lot of things broke down in, in my initial exit uh, strategy and different things that I no longer had control of. But um, that's what they were looking for. They were looking for that technology platform that would allow them to scale and bolt on more offices. And we had a good amount of infrastructure. So in order to be a technology or a, a platform company, you need to have a good amount of infrastructure, the EBITDA or earnings isn't necessarily as important, but usually 
you need to have significant earnings to have a, you know, $10 million type investment. So here's the interesting thing, Scott, Tiger, I know you're the host, but bear with me. If you, if let's just say you're a growing practice like myself and you invest in technology, the platform consolidation, call center, all the things, right? And then the giant P comes along and says, Hey, we'd like to buy you. And you're like, awesome. I already have all this set up. I look at all these expenses I had. That should be an add back to my EBITDA. And they say, well, we have that. We don't really need the th- all this stuff you built because Scott built it for us. And so, uh, so yeah, sorry about all your expenses here, but there's no attribution for that. Um, so right. that's where it's, it's very, so it's almost like I had this conversation with someone and I was like, so you're almost like if you, if you were to exit and you had just made a large capital investment in your company, you almost get penalized for it. Sounds like it. Yeah. So, it, it, so unless, so you, unless you're the platform. Unless you're the platform. Correct. That's but a great that's an point, inflection right? point because you don't know if you're the platform or not. And in right. order to be the platform, you have to go balls to the wall and invest in it. And if you don't, then you're simply going to be a roll up into a bigger DSO be because a there's up. a million out there. Exactly. So then guys, let's take a take, let's take a quick pause. So there's so many ways I want to go in this, but actually let, let's go second, to the one second, one second to, to expand on that, Peter, what I've found nowadays is hence my second exit. Doesn't matter if you're one, two, three, four practices, you're going to get the same valuation is what I'm seeing. Once you get to five. Oh, wait, so you're saying multi isn't this uh, unicorn thing that, that, that you hear about, right? Multi-location. No. Right. No. So these doctors who are like, oh, I'm going to add another location. They can run two well. You get to that third, they start declining the other two. And, and you one know, I see it all for the three. Time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Do one really well. You're going to right. get the same multiple as doing two or wow. three. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. It, it wasn't like Guys. that before 10 years ago. All I right. Agree. I'll be quiet. Yeah. I'm no, no, I'm super curious. Let's let, we'll go to the terms and Peter, you were the one who broke down the term sheet. So we'll link it up for people to go. I'm really curious. So if somebody is like super ambitious, like you two and want to build something, go balls to the wall, but don't know, right? So like these endo specialties, oral surgery specialties, pedo specialties are forming up. Doesn't mean that somebody needs to go to all the DSO events and learn what's going on in the industry, learn what the private equity firms are out there, learn if they have the platform. And then if they have, if they are the platform, then do you demand higher multiple on your EBITDA? If you are going to be the platform and leading this or like, how do you, how does someone look at this? You either could demand a higher multiple, which you probably would get like Scott's multiple is pretty high, or you then will defer some of your conversation back into holding stock. So, right. So the enterprise value, let's just call it 80 million, right. And you're they're like, Hey, I'll take 40%, 40, 40 million. I'll take half cash at close. Right. I would like to deploy 30 as a roll over equity into the now hold co. So now you're writing pair pursue with the GPs of the fund, right. The general partners of the fund. And so your stock is pair pursue with theirs, but here's the kicker, right. And Scott, I know you'll say, if that works and, and, and you've got good operational team and all of a sudden you turn into the next Heartland, well, guess what? You just became a billionaire kind of thing, especially if you're the platform. But if it's a shit show, that common stock could go to zero, 
right? And so that's what I think Scott started this pod saying is like, look, sometimes only depend on the cash you get at closing table because right. things are, there's earnouts and there's common stock and there's things that are designed to possibly you not to ever see that money. Scott, I'd love to hear you. You're, again, you're the expert. Scott, so take you. us through the term sheet. If like, what what was the percentage, if you don't mind? Again, we don't need the exact numbers, but you got on hand. What was the earnout? Like, were you were you afraid of the earnout? Like, like what were your fears before you signed the papers? Yeah, and I'm going to speak in generalities because these groups really make you sign your lives away, as you know. Um, but but right, if you have a $20 million valuation, you, you can expect at most probably 10 in cash at close at most. And then you're going to get some in that owner financing, as Peter called it, which I like pref stock. Basically, it's where they don't pay you out on your money yet until there's a recapitalization event, which is out of your control. So you may not see that for one year, two, three, four, five, 10, 20. If you don't get to decide when they recapitalize, it could sit in there forever at 6%. But guess what? If the company goes belly up, then you don't see any of that because that's in the fine print you sign. Yeah, big fat goose egg. So, you know, that's one section. Then there's also something called an earnout, which Peter was referencing too. So that usually is, okay, they're going to withhold some of your money at four or 6%, whatever, and you need to meet the thresholds you're meeting before in EBITDA and revenue, or sometimes they're going to say, well, you need to actually grow this. And there may be growth numbers that you've never achieved before, and that can be difficult. Then there's also things called indemnity holdbacks. So that's another holdback where basically they say, okay, we're going to hold back some more money just in case there's a lawsuit against someone in the office or a Medicaid fraud thing or a billing thing. So we're going to hold that back as well for a year or two years. And that's all negotiable. Um, and then, well, what's the range of that, that thing? Is it millions? Let's just say again, back to the, our example, till million. Yeah. It can be 10% of your yeah, sales. I was going to say it'd probably be 2 million of that 20 million enterprise. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so now you're getting eight. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. You're, you're still getting the 10%. So he's breaking, what he's doing is breaking down the, the rest cash at close. You get 10, right? And the rest is going to be indemnity, earnouts, money, common stock, and pref. Got it. So the other ten. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And okay. The, Sorry, then, Scott. And then there, that rollover stock could be true stock. That's you know, if you're a platform and getting in early, that's where you can make, like Peter said, those billions. Those right, because your stock at the time is worth the most. So when you're joining a group like, I don't know, any big group out there, you name it you're just diluting other people's stock and your stock price depends on when you're getting in. So like for me, I'm never joining a group that's been around 20 years because I know that group has a lot of debt on it. I know that, right. There's going to be some sort of, you know, stock value that could be artificially inflated. I want to get in as early as possible. Because the um, game is like, Tiger, and I know this enough, the game is you make your money on recapitalization events, right? They call them the recap. So what Scott's saying is that if, if there's a group that's been around 20 years, they've already hot potatoed that thing seven times to seven different groups. So like now you're, you went from trading at an eight, they flipped it to a nine, next person they flipped it as a 13, right? And so it, at some point it's diminishing returns. And like Scott's saying, that common stock is so diluted 
that, that you know, the, the person at the platform is going to, going to kill it at every recap, but the person who is joining at practice number 100 is getting squat, not squat, but definitely not better than traditional selling is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then the other thing you're doing, you're going to sign an agreement that you're going to work for this group minimum three to five years. If, if you think oh. you're getting out in a year, then you're probably joining a, a multi-site dentist, right? You're not joining a DSO. I've never seen less than five, by the way, in every term sheet I've ever gotten. You may, you're saying three to five, maybe it's different for specialty, but, but yeah, isn't that crazy? So like, Hey, I want to sell like of that mindset. When you're ready to sell, usually you're ready to sell me. You're thinking of yourself as sitting on the beach, drinking a Corona. I sold. And, and the, the, the irony is you just became an employee for five years and now you have a boss and now you get a W two, right. And you better not mess up because half of what you agreed to sell for is predicated on your behavior, if you will. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and we'll talk more of the, yeah, yes, Scott. That covers most of it. And, and I can get into pros. This has mostly been been spun a little bit to cons because obviously I've done this twice. So mm -hmm. There are pros, but that's uh, that's pretty much it. You you get that initial cash, and then the others held in all different avenues that you don't be that you don't necessarily have control over. Um, and your money can be stuck. You can literally be stuck, have my equity stuck because you don't get to decide when the group recapitalizes. Yeah. So I think um, one of the things I heard me, from Peter. Add one more thing. Also yeah. in recapitalization, you don't get to decide how much of that you get to take out. Nope. And so, then a recap, just to make sure for people like myself that may not know what that is, a recap is when that private equity firm goes out and basically raises more money or is trying to sell what they have at a different rate. So like they got a double or what, 10 X their money in the next five to seven years. They're going to market with their portfolio now, right? They've, they reached a critical mass. They, they got Scott's practice, my practice, whatever. And they went from, you know, $3 million of EBITDA or $8 million. And now they're, now they're at 20 million, which is a whole different level of sophistication, which now warrants going to market, they call it. Right. So now they're going to, now they're going to run a process, go back to market and see if BlackRock is potentially interested at this level. Right. So yeah. it's, the, it's typically the flipping too. I mean, you can recap by, by financing and get cheaper rates because these are usually leveraged bought, bought out, right. Meaning they're buying your practice, the, the, the 10, the 10 million at close cash at close isn't sitting in the checking account. Typically it's usually a lev It's usually created by some form of leverage on their end. They're getting cheaper capital and then using that capital to buy you. Right. And then the remaining 50% is, doesn't have to be presented yet because it's common stock, all the things we talked about. Right. So it's, it's um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, I kind of rambled and, there, but typically a recap is flipping it to another PE. Yeah. And Peter, yeah. what's interesting now with interest rates so high, a lot of groups are doing what's called a continuation vehicle where, mm. you know, uh, that, that just means that the existing private equity group wants to stay in, but doesn't want to have so much risk of this expensive money out there. So they'll sell to another group, but keep a lot of their money in it and be, a, mm. be like a minority partner. And then what happens is the doctors are getting less money at that recapitalization because a lot of it is still reinvested. They're not actually getting that profit out. And this is going to be mm. very common over the next, well, however because many rates years. Because are high, you're saying. Correct. 
Correct. Yeah. With interest rates yeah. high. Yeah. So then, um, Peter, let me ask you this question. Um, you consider yourself a private practice owner, right? I am. Yeah. So yeah, okay. even if you have seven, I'm, I'm sorry, eight offices, we're still considering you as a private practice, like even though that you have multiple, but you own them yourself. Like you don't have a PE involved, right? So, Correct. yeah. Okay. No so for investment from a, yeah, outside private equity, there's no private equity involvement. It's either it's owned by 100% dentists. Right. So that's a, I think that that's an, an important thing that we want to make sure that people understand. Like we're not against multi-location, do what you need to do and yeah, things so like that. So I am a private DSO tiger, right? I have a management agreement. I have all these things set up. So the, the, the nomenclature of DSO shouldn't be one of bad, right? And maybe, maybe none of this should be put it, put in the bucket of bad, but there's a difference between a private DSO like myself, who's, who's 100% dentist led versus one who's 100 or, or probably majority PE backed. Mm -hmm. Right, because they're the general partners in the fund. I mean, there's a big, there's a big thing to kind of, you know, anyone who's listening to this that wants to learn about it. I mean, this is essentially just a fund, right? And there's LPs and there's GPs and the GPs always make much more money. Right? Yeah. And LPs are limited partners and right. GPs are, are general partners. Just, I don't want people to think GPs like general practitioners. Here's what I think. And Scott, I don't know if you're about to say something, but I think here's my rub and, and maybe I'm being pegged after all these podcast um to be the anti-dso guy and I'm, I'm really not i'm really not but here's the, here's the thing that frustrates me is that everyone would agree that private equity does not make dentistry better as a matter of fact i can point to 100 examples where it's become worse i have never seen an example where it got better from a clinical care blah 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 blah, blah right but here's the, here's the real kicker for me we already own the asset now we just invited an intermediary into the space Right. Like if you and I, if we three owned a, three cars, right. And we, and we owned them outright. And I was like, dude, we, we all have, we all have these, you know, kick-ass Porsches. Let's just call it right. Let's join together and form a Porsche club. Right. And it's going to make money, makes money. So now we have this intermediary involved. And it's like someone coming in and be like, Hey guys, let me see if I can take your Porsche club to market. Right. Or your Porsches to, you know, on auto trader, but I'll sell them all together kind of thing. I guess my frustrating thing is, is that there's really nothing being brought to the table other than a lot of capital and a lot of aggregation, right? They're the sponsor of this, which the sponsor kind of, but like, but we're the ones that already own the asset and are really not realizing the value as much as it could be, right? So there's this intermediary involved that I think that's my, that's my shtick, if you will. Can I, can I steal man the other side? Please. Peter. And again, I'm, I'm totally blind on this, right? So I, I just want to see what you guys' reactions are. And Scott, I think you wanted a second off. And is it now you I'm want good. to? I'm good. Okay. Yeah, I think what, what the other side is, dentistry is hard, right? You're seeing 25, 30 patients. If you're a pediatric ortho, you're seeing more patients. It's, it's burning you. Your back hurts. Depending on a team, your team is like, oh, my God. Right. So then somebody's like, Hey, I'm off today and I'm sick today. I got to take my kids and all of that. And then my supplies are running out of budget. And you're like, where's my composite that I love to use? And my burrs is not here. And so on and on and on, and you're driving home and you're like, what did I sign up for? Right. And again, hopefully you don't have those days, but I, mean, I have a feeling that it happens. What did I say? Like as a dentist, owner dentist to own a practice. Got yeah. It? Yeah. Okay. So then 
I go to an event and then I hear, I don't want to say the names, but I do have one DSO in mind, which is more the dental leadership organization that I, again, from the outside, it looks like that's what they're selling. That's what they're providing. Again, I don't want to say the names, but it sounds like they're like, hey, join our group. We have all the doctors that get together. It's like, I don't know how to call it, but it's like a club that you can bitch and complain and we will hear you out and we'll give you suggestions. But you're also part of a bigger group. You're part of the bigger vision. You can send your team to uh, like this event or this training and this workshop. We'll send the manufacturers to you and you can continue buying what you want to buy. But we will systemize your practice. And if we systemize your practice, you will feel better. Like you will know you'll have the morning checklist, evening checklist. You don't need to worry about if your air compressor is on or if your sterilizer is going to go bad, if somebody did the sport test or not. So like, is there a case for that? And again, I'll, I'll ask both of you guys, because I'm trying to find if there are any pros besides the money to try to sell to the DSO. Like if, if there's a shining light that people are looking at. So, so let me, let me take that just cause I'm back in again. Um, partnerships often don't work um period so i don't know if peter you have a partner or not that's six actually but they're different entities and they're fractionally but yeah so i'm still the majority but yes i'm a big fan of partnerships yeah partnerships are great they generally don't work in dentistry in, in in just in life i mean look at the divorce rate look at look at look at all this i was fortunate i had an excellent partner we work great together um, that's not always the case, but I think what DSOs are, are selling or what they're, they, they bring to dentistry, you know, they have a credentialing team. Credentialing can be a headache. They, they, that sometimes can be helpful if they know what they're doing. That's the big if, if they know what they're doing, because it's ultimately the same gals that are working for us private that are working for the DSOs. Right. Um, Compliance, you know, especially when you're doing a lot of Medicaid, they can help with that. Marketing, sometimes they have sophisticated people that know what they're doing that or don't. Um, the big thing for me is doctor redundancy. So, you know, you can do that by hiring associates, but it is nice to have access to quite a few doctors if you're if you have a lot of volume in a region and people can work together or cover offices. And uh, they have recruiting teams and different things like that. Now, with that, though, comes a lot of expense. So there's a lot of DSOs that aren't doing it right or have a, you know invested a lot of money in a lot of people who didn't work out. So there's a lot of groups out there right now or a lot of dentists who joined these groups that were highly successful and all of a sudden their equity is literally worth zero. Um, and that's something that I think is going to happen more and more as you hear this, there's going to be a few groups that make it, you know, that are, that do things right and have very good CEOs running their groups. And then, uh, there's a lot that just aren't going to make it, unfortunately. Um, one thing to expand on is in, in what I learned is I, I learned this from a really smarter guy than me is. You have to be able to control what you can control. So if you sell your practice to a DSO, you're no longer the owner. You're no longer making all the decisions. You may be a partner, but you're not going to make 
ultimately you're not making the decision. Um, as far as like, you know, what x-ray sensor they want to order when something blows out or, you know, they may say, oh, you can get whatever you want. And then in reality, they have control. Um, but, you know, you can still control in most of these groups how you clinically practice. But it's a lot of the little things that frustrate you because I can guarantee you Peter's practices, my practices when they were private were run better. Guaranteed than a DSO because you're there right? You're, you're totally invested. Part of what you're doing when you're selling is you're giving up some of that autonomy for that money. And you have to be okay with that. A lot of doctors aren't. So there's a lot of emotional um, things involved that people don't really talk about, um, especially dentists. What are they? Giving up control. You have to be okay with what you but you're type A. You went through dental school. You're driven as F. How do you give up control? Like the only way I see it, the only way I imagined it is, yeah, you get money, paid, money you're out. Money talks. And 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 also as 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 I got older, I realized, okay, I'm I'm okay with not having control with some things because I believe in the group's model or I believe in the CEO. With which my new group, I fully believe in this CEO's ability. I think it's a very unique thing, um, but it's very rare. There just aren't that many good CEOs. There's not that much talent in dentistry compared to other um, other other specialties. Dentistry is very unique. Dentists are very highly compensated. It's not, you know, physical therapy where you pay them. 60 grand. It's not veterinary medicine where you pay a vet 70 grand or whatever it is. Dentists are used to making good money, especially the ones whose practices you want to buy because you don't want to buy the others. Or those fancy specialists, you know. Or those fancy specialists, yeah. right. <laughs> so, Peter, to you, like, again, back to my example. I don't know, Scott, if I'm cutting you off or not. No. I just want to hear uh, uh, Peter's perspective. So, again, like, is there, is there a case that you see for Idea so either called dental dental leadership organization or dental led practice whatever there's so many DDL whatever we've heard in the past many years but is there a case for one because to me it's like my favorite show is the chef's table on Netflix right so I watch it in the in the moments when I see two chefs sketching out the meal how it's gonna get served or they got like four people how they're gonna bake the bread. They're like, is it going to be served with olive oil? Like to me, that's what I think when I think about the DSO, like dentists, like looking together at x-ray, like, Shh, like, would you do this? Like, how would you do like all on four or like all on X here? Like, what would like, would you grow the bone first? Like, what do you do? Like to me, that, that would be what I think it is, right? So like getting together with your peers to discuss the cases, the treatments, like having like, like treatment buddies to run by, but maybe I'm living in a different right. planet. And you think, okay. So let me, I will get to that, but I want to, I want to echo what Scott has said about the people are going to be exposed. There's going to be some things, right? When the tide is going out, you get to see who's swimming naked. And I think the, the zero interest rate policy that we had so much allowed this massive consolidation to happen. And people were, were overpaying and getting sloppy and just bolt, 
bolting on or duct taping all these practices together and the tide is going out as scott mentioned with the interest rates it's going to get harder and harder and that's why they're having to come up with creative terms called called uh continuation vehicles right to cover yeah. their six on, on shit that happens and so i am just a um you know so i hear you on the hey dso's could potentially help doctors get together and care more and talk about cases and be less lonely maybe but guess what in my experience no one washes a rental car right and at that point it's not your car anymore and so you 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 just inherently care less because you're like i sold it right it doesn't make it better and, it, and you love your patients and you're always going to do well by them but at the end of the day you're like i got paid to leave at five o'clock and i can't tell you and scott would mention like how many days did our clinical care end and the other half of our day begin as operators and yes it sucked and you had to eat your own glass and start liking the taste of your own blood kind of thing but it was worth it because it was your car and it was shiny and you were proud of it and all these things and so i don't think what your example is tiger to have like collaboration is predicated on a dso just make a bigger group like i did right I have doctors that collaborate all day long, but it's, it didn't have to happen because of a, a, an outside entity. Right. But I think to your point, you said, look, the pros and cons. And I will say, I think that knowing thyself in this process, Scott, you're, you're, you know, if I personality tested you with something called a culture index that we do a lot of, I, I can pretty much pick what you would be. You would be an enterpriser or a trailblazer, right? You were bred to do this. You were called to do this. You were pulled to do this. Some people, hear this narrative in dentistry that, oh, there's big exits and all this money going around, right? And you've got people like Brady Frank going on Instagram telling everybody that oh, the, the window's closing and you better sell, like these scare tactics, which are bullshit and horrible for our, for our industry. <clears throat> I, I mean, sorry, I, I go off on a little, little diatribe on that one because that just, I hate scare tactics, especially to our industry. Um, but I'm, now I lost my train of thought. Damn it. See, anger. Gets so then I will ask another question. So then now we're in a position where we kind of went through all the pros and cons and people can pick, pick their own uh, poison, but maybe let's talk about, I so, I know going. so, so sorry. Okay. Sorry. You have finished your thought. Right, mm -hmm. I need to finish this, but it is important to know thyself. That's where I was going with the Scott example, right? Like sometimes you will be happy sometimes dentistry you hear these exits and you hear what private equity wants and you hear all these things we see this in our mastermind right we coach 30 dentists across the nation and we see this all the time that you cut and paste someone else's narrative someone else's goal it's truly not authentic to you and you think like well in order to get out of dentistry i've got to go from one to three because that's what private equity wants and that's really my only way to get away from the chair because i really don't love dentistry let's just say they're speaking that way to themselves right? And that's just knowing yourself is very important. You could have been better served by being the most amazing craftsman style craftsman dentist, right? Someone who just loved their craft, but didn't want to deal with payroll, blah, 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 made $2 million a year, produced $2 million a year as an associate, had a kick-ass life, right? And, and, and you went down this inauthentic path for 20 years, you know, and that's why we're leading in suicide and divorce and drug abuse, you know, like all these things, like Craig, Craig will say on our podcast is because it's because we're following inauthentic visions, ones that are pushing you, not pulling you. Yeah. So, and hopefully so. this is what we're trying to do here is break down these things. Like, I mean, in my world in technology, 
I mean, you guys have seen what happened in 2019 through 2022. Like people were raising hundreds and hundreds and millions of dollars. Even take our dental space. My competitors raised millions and millions and millions of dollars. I don't know what they're doing. I've never seen them even compete near me. Right. So like, again, it's, it, you're absolutely right. You need to know what you want. You need to stick with what, what you want and be okay with who you want to be. I think my next question is if somebody is listening, like, all right, so if I'm not selling to the DSO because of all these things that I don't even know what they mean, like vehicles and this and earnouts, and I want to, I don't want to do it. And like, I, I'm flattered that now I'm practice, let's just say my single location is valid at $20 million hypothetically, but I'm only getting 10. Like that's, that's a ripoff. I don't want to sell. What is the other option? What's the alternative? So, so I do think private practice valuations are going to stay pretty stable to other private practice doctors. So I, I, I believe, you know, if you have one office and it's nice and you want to sell it and retire, that someone coming in, those valuations are going to hold. I think value I, I think DSOs are always going to be out here and grow and buy practices, but I think the valuations DSOs are going to pay are only going to go down over time. And the, the reason for that is going to be all these, you know, things you're going to start hearing about of doctors losing equity, of groups folding, of there's a lot of bad operators out there, bad DSOs. And also they're going to realize very quickly, this is something I, I've had a lot of discussions with. I'm just going to use oral surgery, for example. I've been nailed in this. You buy an oral surgery practice and the doctors are like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll work for 25%, right? So essentially every ortho, every oral surgery, the market is 40% for an associate oral surgeon to 50. So guess what? This doctor is going to be a partner in quotes, work, got a higher valuation because they agreed to work for 25% for three, five years, whatever it is, five years. At that five-year time, that DSO, if they decide to retire or leave, is going to have to backfill with someone who's 40 to 50%. That's a very bad, bad, bad thing. And further, a very big opportunity for some of these docs because, you know, they may say, look, I'll stay another two years. I won't retire yet, but I want 40% or whatever an associate gets. And I see associates nowadays making more and more money as debt raises, you know, for dental school and everything. They, they have to make more money and they're, they're getting more money. They're, they're demanding, demanding it and, it, and it's coming. Um, so it's just a bad sort of situation, I think, over time. And I think that they'll adjust, the DSOs will adjust and, and value your practice at a lower EBITDA than you think it is because they're going to say, well, we're going to keep you on at 35%, not 25% or whatever it is. Peter, before we go to you, so Scott, finish your thought on what, so what is the option? So let's just say I'm a, I'm a 45 to 50 to 55 year old dentist that, you know, work really hard, built his or her practice, ready to retire. I don't want to go the DSO route. What is my option? And, and Peter, especially maybe, when maybe better than me, but it's, I think it's, you know, all right, associate, let's let's put together a package where we're on a, a work-to-own partnership path and then, you know, full exit after a certain number of years. The reason those don't work is because the a lot of the old-time docs, right, 
would just throw a carrot out there and leave. verbally talk about it instead of putting it in writing. But really, yeah, it's private yeah. practice. It's it's a partnership. It's it's DSO or it's platform. I have four 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 things to say. You say, well, what are their options, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So typically, when someone wants to sell their dental practice, they have been redlining their own RPM for so long. They're doing it. What's RPM? Revolutions per minute. Just a car analogy, right? If when you redline your car. The engine's going to blow and it's going to fatigue and, and things are going to fail, right? The oh, okay. Stressed. So just metaphorically speaking, they're redlining, they're overworked. I can't do anything. Seeing patients, doing payroll, right? So what do they pull? They In their heads, they, it's very binary and in this humans, but dentists especially, I see this. It's very binary. It's either 100% or the corona on the beach, which is zero. So it's one or zero. As opposed to, and so they pull the effort card. And say I'm selling my practice. Hey, buy me Pete. Buy me private equity or DSO. Buy me. I'm putting going market broker. I'm done with dentistry. I'm burnt out. Versus just taking some time. And I encourage people who are who are at that place because I was there, Tiger, a place where I was burnt out, done and done. I encourage people to go who are romantic about the the, the corona on the beach. Go do that. Take close your practice for a month before you sell it. Go sit on the beach for a month with your Corona. And in about three weeks, you're going to be ready to uh, get back to work, right? Because it's not, it's not fulfilling at all. So the four things I would recommend when someone's considering this first before you sell is, is if you're redlining and you're burnout and you want to sell, titrate your practice down in, in, in your time. Meaning I'm working six days a week. We'll go to three and make less money for a while. Try that. Right, because that may be your Goldilocks answer for sustainability long term. Right, doesn't ha- no one told you you had to work six days a week? So titrate down. And what I have found is, is actually most people, most dentists I know, the 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 apex of their earnings happens at around three days a week. <laughs> Believe it or not, ironically. Okay. Um, the other thing I would say is hire an implementer. Before you, before you sell your practice, because a lot of the burden that you feel, a lot of the things that wear you out can be done by someone better than you at, at doing this, right? Get yourself an executive assistant, get yourself an implementer, you know, have someone, you know, be the CEO of you and offload things that you hate, audit your day and offload the things, write them down, the things I hate, things I love, right? And hopefully clinical dentistry is in the, in the column you love, but like write down the shit you hate. Right? And then work obsessively to extricate yourself from those processes. Um, the other thing I would say is consider fractional ownership. Dentistry doesn't have to be 50-50 partners like Scott was saying, and that's why a lot of them fail. Right? I have fractionally sold 5% of my practice to someone. Right, And so, you know, and people say, well, that's crazy in dentistry. You know, we're used to this. Well, you buy stock in Amazon and you own 0.000000, I could just keep going, percent of the company. Right, so consider fractional ownership because that affords you a liquidity of a, a micro liquidity event. You're still in control, and you still have. And I will end with this: the most important aspect of your of your life, right? The master KPI is: are you fulfilled in your life? And so then you still have some purpose and fulfillment versus like just being like, all right, I'm going to play golf the rest of my life, you know, kind of thing. So, and if you've gone through all these things and you're like, yeah, I still hate it. I still want. I still want to check. Want to get out, 
Well, just understand you're going to do that same stuff for the next five years, especially if you're going to exit in a big way and, um, and just be okay with it. So that would be, that's, that's my monologue on, on the, on the, yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good monologue. And maybe Scott, can you add to that? Like, so you got your check, the money hit the bank account. It's a big amount. And I think you work your butt off for the next three to four years or five years. I've seen you drive around Indiana, Wisconsin, trying to get these offices signed up. But then, but then you were up. Like, I don't know what changed. Like, were you, did you get burnout? Like, um, I was burnt out. Or it wasn't worth it? I was burnt out. It, it just wasn't worth it for me. I mean, really what happened was with, without getting too much into it is when you give up control of your practice and, and your, your vision, someone else can ultimately make the decision of where it's going to go. And for me, we lost focus in what we were really good at and started to make everyone try to make everybody happy and, and do everything and, and get into GP and this or that. Well, I don't know anything about GP. I have no, I, I'm the first to tell you, I, I know nothing. Um, but if people think that that's the route to go that you sold to, that's the route you're going to take. Me, I knew Peter Ortho and I knew it well. And I knew my Peter Ortho, which is low income, high volume. I, I just had very good systems. And when that changed, it just wasn't fun anymore. That was what I loved and was passionate about. And so fortunately, COVID hit and Illinois was shut down. So I uh, moved out to Phoenix and it's been no looking back since. So awesome. it's been awesome. Um, but I do, do, to Peter's point, as a dentist, you don't have to work six days a week. You don't have to work five. You, you can work three, four, like just figure out what you are passionate about and go for it. I, I mean, it's actually a good story how I started my first practice was the biggest shithole in the world. I mean, this thing was terrible. We were, the tenant behind us kept smoking weed, um, train station. And you're, and you're seeing kids. Rattled all, yeah, we're seeing kids. Train station was so loud. Like, it was terrible. My rent was 600 a month, though. I had two chairs, 780 square feet. And out of those two chairs, I, I set a goal. I'm going to hit a million. And I'm going to be all fee-for-service and treat people right. I was totally fee for service, hit 997. Oh, I didn't quite hit the million, but my profit, I mean, I was at 75% take home. So, you know, you don't need to produce huge numbers. You just need to control your overhead and do what you enjoy. And it was very easy to run a two, two out practice because you had three employees. Um, awesome. Then that office now is. 20,000 square feet and a huge headache. Um, but it's I still, still a cash cow. It's a cash cow, but I love those two, two op days and, and you can be highly successful. And that's the beauty of dentistry. You can be highly successful in all different models, Medicaid, fee for service, taking every insurance. If you do what you do well and treat people right, you, you're going to do awesome. Um, but, but then, but ownership's not for everyone. You know, and you need to tell yourself Amen. that you need to know what, what you're good at. And there's many, I have many associates who are fantastic, earn 400 grand a year, work nine to five, go home, have great family life, uh, take their vacation four weeks a year. 
and that's perfectly great as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the last thing I would say on this tiger, not, not Scott, I agree with everything you said, um, is that be cognizant of the fact that let's go back to the example of the $10 million, right? Oh, I'm going to get $10 million for my practice. Yeah. You're going to get a check. And guess who's going to guess who's going to have their hand out first, right? Yes. Some will be capital gains and blah, blah, blah. Okay. So now we're down. Let's just call it seven. Okay. So you mean there's capital gain 30%. You're going to pay uncle Sam for gonna, the capital have, gain tax. You're going to have a tax thing, right? Yeah. But whether it's capital gains or ordinary income, whatever it's going to be. My, my, that don't get hung up on that. My point is now you're at seven. Okay. So now you're like, cool. I got 7 million bucks in the bank and no income potentially other than maybe, maybe being the dentist in the practice that you're being paid by the DSO. So now you have to go find yield, right? You, you gave up your cash flow for a big check. So now you have a big check. And now you go to go find yield in today's market, right? And you're going to put it in this, you're going to put it in Amazon, you're going to put it and give it to your broker, you know, what are you going to do? And, or you're going to put it in T-bills and you're going to earn, you know, let's say, let's call it 5% a year, okay? Which is great. Risk-free money. I want risk-free money because I already took risk. Okay, great. So that 7 million is going to yield you, what, $350,000 a year, right? But in a practice that size that we're talking about that sold for 10, what do you think? the cash flow was or the EBITDA to the owner was right. Meaning do you think they got, they, do you think they took a pay cut in this scenario? Right. It might, and I would say yes. Right. And they lost the owner benefits because now it's a W two versus we all know our car and buying a truck and going to CE and all these things are tax abated situations from our AGI or gross income. Right. So you're losing all those benefits of being the business owner. So Cash flows, you don't have more of that cash flow. So it's just something to, it's an exercise to go through. And when I personally went through this, even though I was, I was romantic and giggly about the number that I was getting, when I ran through and broke down it systematically, what it's going to look like, it actually was a detriment. It my my income was going to go in half based on what it was now. Right. And yes, I was going to have the security of money in a bank account, but guess what? That money was already there. It's just in the form of my own stuff now, right? It's always been there. It's just now, and now it's consolidated in zeros and ones in, a, in an account, but it's always been there. And so I, I always just encourage people who are looking at it. And I am not saying never sell your practice by any means. Cause like we all have to sell to somebody somewhere unless you're going to give it to your kid. Right. So, so I'm not ever saying that I'm just saying like, look at options for sustainability because, because it's a great life. It's a great profession. There are many, many options. You can make less if you need to, and get more time if that's what you're seeking. Um, so there's just so many options and I just don't want this, this narrative in dentistry to be so binary, like hold right. be miserable or sell and be happy. And like, and Scott has told you, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. So that's all I got on that. We lost Peter for a second. I think he's uploading. Yeah. I lost him too. I'm here. I don't know yeah. what's going on with my signal. So you're back, though. Yeah, I think. Um, I think yeah. I'll tell you real quick, then we can change subjects. Yeah, yeah. To, to expand on what Peter said, like, uh, this is my second stint. I'm, this is my second two exits. Uh, you know, I'm back in, and so 
what Peter said is what I wanted. I wanted to buy time. Um, I have a nine and 12 year old big tennis players. I'm out of town every, almost every single weekend traveling the United States soon, probably even internationally. I wanted that and I wanted to diversify and rid some, rid some headache. But more importantly, the group that I joined, I believe in their vision and believe in their CEO. That's very, very rare to find because you're not going to talk to a CEO. I, I mean, unless you're, you have eight offices like Peter, the CEO may come out and, you know, shake hands and do whatever, but you're going to talk to their chief development officer who doesn't give a crap about you. Who's just looking at numbers. And if you think like when you join a DSO that you're going to be in a group of doctors talking cases, maybe, but that's bullshit. You're going to be looking at spreadsheets. They're going to say, Hey, you, your price per visits down. You're underperforming doc. What's going on? Yeah. A lot of that. And we do that ourselves. So don't think that, you know, multi-site dentists don't, know their numbers everybody does but it's a it's a little different when it's coming from people who are non-clinical or that clinical person who's been non-clinical for 10 15 20 years who's the chief dental officer who doesn't know anything about being in the trenches because they haven't been um that being said though you know i believe in the group that i joined in the ceo and in the vision and uh so that's what ultimately brought brought me in that in time. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. I think the last thing I want to drop, and then we will start closing down. So when we look at this, right? So it sounds to me, and I hope I'm wrong, but it sounds to me there's a pickle where we want to sell to associates. And one of my favorite doctors, Dr. Tom Novak, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying his name. And Scott, you met him at the last Friday call. He wanted he he had offers from DSOs, but he he's like, no, I'm gonna go and bring my associate and start slowly selling to an associate. And he's a great, great associate, right? And but it seems like with high student loan debt, high interest, we wouldn't be able to sell to associates. So how can we resolve that? It's the same as a DSO. Owner finance put an interest rate on it. That's what they do. I mean, Peter, am I wrong? hundred percent. You're right. I mean, you can know. you give more details? Like, I, I, I'm not getting it. How would that work? You want to take it, Pete? No, you go ahead, bud. Go all ahead. right. So, so you know, if you if you're selling to do DSO, you're you're not getting all your cash. They're actually you're actually helping them finance it by by accepting an interest rate for money that they're not going to give you right now. It's the same for you know when you bring on an associate. So if you have a great associate, I have one that that was fantastic. You know. She was great. I've had many great ones. I've been I've been blessed with great associates over the years. Same. Well, they may not have the money because they want to buy a home someday. They want to they want to you know they have six hundred thousand in in debt. But you you believe in them. So what do you do as the practice owner? You say, okay, I'll I'll help finance it for you. You can just shift some of their income pre tax over to you know uh, uh, an the interest rate service. you apply to it. Yeah, and and you do your own. Uh, you're, you're the bank. You do your own debt service and that's it. I did this, Scott, that, I love that you brought this up. Uh, I've done this five of the six times on our financing, right? Um, and, and everyone 
advise everyone outside the industry advised against it. And I think it's a great thing for a lot of things that Scott mentioned as well, because a, a, if you're doing fractional ownership, you're let's say you're selling for five or 10%, right? No bank is really going to give you them a loan on that because why, why do you think tiger? They wouldn't give them a loan. Yeah, because they have no collateral. They have no collateral, right? They have no position. They're 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 in a subordinate position in terms of majority ranking, right? There's they don't own. There's no there's no recourse for the bank. <clears throat> Additionally, like Scott said, a lot of these people, all these A players who want this are out of school, want to buy a home, they you know they want to do something with a kid, whatever, and so buying a partnership puts if they get traditional financing, it puts that. It puts that lending on their balance sheet, their personal balance sheet. So now a bank looks at this and says, God, you got student loans and you bought into this practice. It, you know, you got you got $500,000 debt to this guy. So it's off of a balance sheet, meaning it's a personal arrangement between Scott and his new partner to be. No one else has to know about it, right? You also play the bank a little bit, right? And it's because you're doing a solid to them. You're saying, hey, I'll just take the whatever you were going to pay at the bank. I'll take that as the interest rate. And so that's not like, you know, you're not doing it for free because there's a cost of capital associated with you giving someone that. And so you make a little vig on on the interest, right? As you should. Um, and and here's the thing. What is the recourse? If that person fails on me, right? I'm not. We already talked about the bank scenario, but Scott's probably thinking this too. If your associate that you love all of a sudden turns out to be a shithead that, that is buying in, right? It's like, I'll take partnership. And then a year later, they just, they get into drugs or whatever. Guess what the recourse is, Tiger? You buy that share back? No, you don't buy it back because you they never bought it to begin with. It was owner financed, remember? So mm. the equity that's at stake is now yours again. So you're in the same situation exactly where you were before you met that person, right? And yes, it, there's some headache and some heartburn with that, but the recourse is you get the equity back and they go away. So your risk is mitigated, right? It's an asymmetric risk, as I always say. I look for asymmetry in, in things like this, and that is a good risk, meaning you're, you could, your upside is you can have a potential amazing partner in perpetuity, and your downside is you made a mistake and you get your equity back. No big deal. It's not bad. Not bad. But is that is that the case? How would that be perceived? And again, we're running out of time. But I do want to ask, like, how is that perceived from the associate standpoint? Yeah. So, so a lot of the associates think they need to be a partner with control, and and so you have to trust the person that you're joining. Um, the other thing, you know, Peter probably has very successful cash flowing practices. A lot of owners can't afford to do this because unfortunately they may do mm. one five in collection or production or whatever the production usually they're saying, but they actually aren't making that much money. Right. So their accounts don't advise them to do it because they really can't do it. But if you're a successful practice owner with a nice cash flow, there's no reason you can't do this. Get that doctor in there that has you know, ownership that's, that's running that, that office for you, then go and do your next office. Um, yeah. There's a whole pod on this tiger, right? That the associate yeah. needs to be doing about a million bucks a year. Scott's right. The practice needs to have a healthy enough EBITDA. Their distribution has to be healthy enough where it really helps abate their debt service to you every month. All these things. 
you have to look at, right? It's not just the, Hey, buy in and I'll refinance it for whatever. There's mm-hmm. a lot to unpack here, but it's, it's just imperative for us to put this on the map, I think. And I'm just got, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. I'll link up. Um, if you can send me that link to that specific podcast, I'd love to link it up. No, Any closing thoughts? On, I don't have one on that. I, I have one on the one that you broke down that I broke down the term sheet, but I don't Oh, have okay, cool. Okay. Maybe we can talk about it on a separate yeah. part, but as we're closing down, so I, I always use this one example. Um, I have an office and, and I believe that our platform is helping level the playing field for private practice. And we focus on private practices, not, it's not that we don't work with DSOs, but our primary focus is the private practices and helping them to level the playing field because we all know the cost of supplies is a big part of the the expenses. And I and I remember this example and it and it blew my mind and I always tell this to to the doctors I work with. There's this office in Cedar Park, and they're on budget, but I, I look through their expenses and I see that they're buying expensive composite. I don't want to say the brand names. And I went back and I said, look, would you want to try something that you're buying something for a hundred, but I have a composite that, that flowable that costs 20 bucks. And the doctor looked at it and she looked me in the eyes and says, no, I actually want to go up. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I don't even like the one that I'm using. I want to go up, like to go with the brand, like the, the Lexus of the composites. And I looked at her and she looked at me and she's like, what are you going to try to tell me that I can't? I own this office. She's like, I work my butt off to own my office and I'm going to use whatever the f- I want. She didn't say specifically that way, but it sounded that way. And I went back and I was like, that was so powerful. Like I'll work with the team to get the right quantities, to get them on the budget. But it is so powerful that she can switch from one bird to the other, go expensive, cheaper, whatever she wants. And it's the freedom. And I'm like, this is great. This is amazing. I don't think it's going to happen at any DSOs. But if it does, God bless them. But that's why you own the practice to do whatever you want to do, however you want to see the patients. And if you want to go with the most expensive stuff, go with it. No one should tell you that you should not. Not a buying group, not a consultant, none, none of them should tell you. They should work around your needs and how you want to do things. But again, that's my closing spiel. I'm, I'm curious what you guys want to say. Autonomy was probably the biggest driver why 90% of dentists got into this industry, right? That kind of autonomy, right? And I actually call this in our podcast. I have a big session in our summits I call the freedom of direction, right? Which allows, I think dentistry is the most beautiful profession on the planet because you can do just like what you said. If you want to be, if you want to be the Rolls Royce of composite, you do that, right? If you want to, if you want to optimize your practice for time, guess what? Go and do that. If you want to optimize your practice for impact and give back and take Medicaid and do a ton of philanthropy work, you go do that. If you want to operate your practice and, and have a, a, an empire of real estate that's, that's backed by your own practices, go do that. Tell me another profession where you have the same freedom of that direction. There isn't one, right? And so that's what I'm saying. The autonomy and that freedom, be prepared because there's a cost for that, as we've just alluded to in this entire pod. And maybe it works out better for you, right? But for me, Freedom, autonomy, and time are a number one. So, Amazing. So, so, Peter, I'm going to challenge that a little bit since since I'm enjoying my DSO space right now. How's a dentist get that nowadays? When you're coming out with three, four, five hundred thousand in debt, you can't just open an office. You can't okay. get a loan. The bank, like how how do you how do you get there? 
eventually there's not going to be as many private practices as more people sell the DSOs. Mm -hmm. Do you go rural? Do you, do you, how do you get there? How do you do it? Yeah, you go rural for sure. You, <laughs> you want to do well, you go rural. That's just, I'll tell you that first off the gate. Um, if you want to, if you want to be, if you want to enjoy and, and go to dinners and nice restaurants and have Amazon come to you the same day, then live in the city and compete with everybody else. But if you want to go rural, you'll be the king of the town and you'll have, you'll be highly respected, but that's a different, that's a different um, thing. So how does someone do it coming out with a, a tremendous amount of debt? You live lean, you make a, you learn how to produce your face off, right? Become the most highly qualified dentist who can enroll dentistry, perform amazing clinical dentistry, right? So the first way out of student debt is make a bunch, make a bunch of money, right? Through and don't rack up expenses through doing amazing dentistry and live like you're still a student until that student loan is gone. And where do you learn? If, if the private Police. practices are hiring DSO. Scott Goldman, you find mentors, you find places to teach you how to do this, right? Like I, this was, I didn't develop how to become a successful dentist. You didn't develop how to become a, a successful dental entrepreneur, right? You stood on the shoulders of giants yourself. And so is it a longer road potentially now because of, because of student loans? Maybe, maybe, but you could also convert that debt. If you had a house, like get rid of your student loans by getting a HELOC. You, there's just so many ways around, like not, not being this encumbered by, oh, I have a tremendous amount of student debt. I had a tremendous amount of student debt. I went to dental school out of state, right? But, but, but I worked, I worked hard to get out of that. Um, and so I don't think that that limits decisions unless you've ranked up a million dollars of, of, of student loans, which I've, you know, I've heard people in the seven, eight hundreds, like, well, of course that may be choice limiting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I, I think that's very interesting. I also think you really have to look in the mirror mirror. And I, I liked your comment about the cultural competency test or, or culture. Index, who, yeah. yeah. That you have to know who you are. And there's a lot of people that do not belong owning a practice and they think that's what they need to do. Um, that's one of my, because they were told because they were told. Yeah. That's one of my closing, you know, remarks is I, I have a, a couple friends who are just fed up with associate jobs, bad one after bad one. And now they're going to open a practice and I know what's going to happen. You know, they're, they, they, they aren't the right personalities. They're not, they're not ready. Um, but yeah, that's great. You have to find mentors. You have to learn from people. You have to learn from podcasts. You have to read, read books. Um, you have to commit to getting better yourself. Dental school does not prepare you for practice ownership, period. And, yeah. you know, I see all these things. Oh, I'm going to go to this dental school, which is Midwestern's the big name, right? In, in Arizona, everyone wants to go there. I can tell you, I've had doctors from there working for me. They still don't know shit. Who gives a shit where you went to dental school? First off. Exactly. Yeah. Go to Indiana for $35,000 a year. I mean, Learning it's like, does any patient be like, Oh, you went there now versus university of Kentucky. <laughs> like who gives a shit? Get over your ivory tower ego bullshit about where you went to school. No one cares. No one cares. Your patients sure. Shit. No, let's not poop on people that did go to these schools. It's great that you did I'm amazing not for you. Anything I'm saying, get over it. 
Yeah, and you're I'm actually yeah. typically a shittier dentist, especially the Harvard trained ones. But <laughs> let's not talk too much about that. All right, guys. On this happy note, I think we can go in so many directions. I'd love to have you back, but I want to be respectful to the time that we booked for you. And I know you both are super busy running um, your businesses. And I'm grateful for the advice. And I hope it unpacks something for someone. Maybe there's one person, one doctor is listening out there and she or he is like, nah, you know, I'm going to choose what I want to choose and whatever that is, but know what you're choosing. So I hope we gave you enough information. Awesome. So that's awesome. I'm grateful to you guys. So just yeah. a quick heads up. Don't shut down your browser because this thing is going to upload into the pod. So leave it, oh. leave it, but I'm going to stop the pod. And so thanks everybody. I'll see you on the next one. All right. Thanks. Thank you guys.